Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the latest uh, Askell Podcast where we've got five voices for you today. We start with Rachel Warwick, our Vice President at Askell, talking about the diversities and equality agenda that she's driving through Askell Council, through Askell more generally, and why it matters so much. Julia Harden is here, giving us an update in terms of funding. Then you've got Emma Knights talking about a great new programme the NGA are running called Educators on Boards, showing why being a member of a trust or a board as a governor is a really good way of enriching your own professional development, bringing ideas back to your own school, your own academy, your own college, but also contributing your insights to that establishment. Julia Upton talks about how you instill the values of being a Church of England school and how you know whether you're being successful with that. And we finish with the indefatigable Sir Anthony Selden talking about AI and how that might change the nature of the teaching profession in the future, but also talking about universities. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Rachel Warwick, Executive Head of Ridgeway Education Trust in Oxfordshire and Vice President of Askell this year. And we've just um, got to the end of an executive meeting and one of the most important themes which you've really driven along with uh, Julie McCulloch is our kind of equalities, diversity agenda. And it's easy to talk about that and it to kind of feel good, but you've really made it kind of gritty. So tell us what it is, tell us what we're trying to do. I think there's a real appetite amongst um, Askell Council and the membership to have a more diverse and representative group of school and college leaders talking at council and executive about the many issues that are so important to all of us. So I've decided to make that the theme of my presidential year in 2019-20 and I've had um, really great opportunities to work with Julie McCulloch and Anna Cole other key Askell people around what a plan looks like to um, develop and embed cultural change around um, a diverse and vibrant Askell and what that looks like going forward and how we make that happen on behalf of school leaders across the country. So that's going to show up in terms of what council itself may look like. So how are we how are we trying to get to that? We've got three strands of the work. One of um, those is around council and governance. So encouraging um, a more diverse group of people to stand for council membership and supporting them to feel comfortable in doing that. Really good induction, trying to get a range of voices into council um, and looking also across the system more widely how we can influence that agenda by working with stakeholders from different groups, creating some best practice guidance around recruitment or equalities audits, for example. And I think the conference in March is a huge opportunity to make this priority really visible. So we're thinking hard about who's standing on that main stage, who the delegates are, how we encourage um, a whole range of people to come to conference and to own it as their own professional organisation and to take part in that um, conference in Birmingham at the ICC next March. It's, it's a really interesting idea. When we talk about the conference looking like it's got more diversity, we tend to talk about, right, what are the people like we see on stage? But you've talked, and I've never thought about it, about sort of what does the audience look like? Now, how, how can we make a, a, a difference to that? I think it's about Askell reaching out and working with different networks. So there's some great grassroots organisations like BayMed and WomenEd and we want to make sure that they've got a real place at conference, they're incentivised to come and the people within those groups feel that conference is for them and want to be there too. And I think then we really are representing 
the diverse group of school leaders across the country and it's really important that we do that and it says something about the type of organisation we are, the people that choose to come to our conference so I think that's a really important priority for us. Last question and this is the one that interests me particularly in a way, Um, so we're trying to make an impact on council because that represents people, we're trying to make an impact across the system more generally but you've been very insistent that those 40 or so staff that we've got working at HQ as well as those other staff who we've got you know, as field office and so on, that every one of us is going to go through a kind of training on this. Why is that? Why is the person on reception, for example, why is the person who's doing secretarial work, why is it that all of us, including me, we're all going to do this in September? Because I think that's what cultural change looks like. I think it's about everybody being aware and realising they've got a role to play in noticing and role modelling the kind of diversity that is so important for our society at leadership level and to only look at a certain level or tier of um, ASCO leadership would be really wrong-headed I think in terms of wanting that shared culture and consciousness to develop across the organisation at all levels so everyone feels included and part of that change. Rachel Warwick, thank you. Julia Harden, ASCO Funding Specialist. Julia, not so long ago you were at the Education Select Committee where Robert Halfen as chair was asking about how much money does the education system need. It it was a a key moment for us that, wasn't it? Can you explain why? It it certainly was. It was a a very direct question um, and the question was how much money do we need for a 10-year plan for education? And no one in the room was able to answer it with any confidence because we didn't feel that we fully understood what government expected from the education system. Um, and Robert Helfen came straight back to us and said, well, you tell us, you're the experts. So that really was, was the, the, um, the inspiration for thinking about how we fund education, thinking about it in a different way. So we've got um, our report, The True Cost of Education. You work with a team of people on that. Can you kind of explain the approach you took? So we worked um, with a team of of people from across the education sector uh, and we decided that we would look at um, how much we needed to fund the system using the government's own methodology. So everyone in the system at the moment is is having to test their own budgets against um, a process of curriculum-led planning. So we thought that we would use the same metrics to determine um, nationally how much we would need. So we looked at the country as if it were one large school. And... Could you explain some of the assumptions, therefore, which went behind that? Okay. So we decided that we would look at, at this, the delivery of a system based on entitlement. So thinking about things like, does every child uh, is every child entitled to a qualified teacher in front of every class? Um, and we also thought quite a lot about workload for teachers and how much is it reasonable to expect a teacher to teach to be at least good in every lesson. So they were the, that's the entitlement, and then we thought about some assumptions. So we made assumptions based on how much contact time a teacher should be reasonably expected to, to have. We made assumptions about what um, the maximum size of a group uh, should be. We made assumptions about how much teaching time was needed to uh, manage increasing pastoral and safeguarding issues that... that uh, that schools are having to deal with all of the time and how much a reasonable level of pupil-teacher ratio 
is, what that looks like in a primary school and a secondary school. And there were some things that you deliberately didn't include in this. So let's, let's just be clear what those are. So we, we decided that we would just look at what we believe is the, a basic level of provision. So that's the absolute minimum in any school is, that is required to deliver a core education, keep the building um, heated and lit, keep it well maintained and have sufficient and necessary uh, non-teaching staff and resources and also to deliver the first £6,000 of support for any children with special educational needs because all of those are expectations that are put on the core budget without any additional grant income. And so having done the calculations, what is the true cost of education then? Uh, at the moment, we think we need an additional 5.7 billion into the schools block to more than we've got now to deliver that uh, basic level of education. And I think I think for me, what's interesting about that is because you're making assumptions like, for example, that every child should be entitled to a qualified teacher. It then allows us to say, well, you know, if at the Treasury or if at the Department for Education you don't agree with the sums here which bit of that assumption do you, do you do disagree with? So which children would you decide shouldn't have a qualified teacher? I think it's a really interesting and forensic piece of work and it's been very well received and has certainly provoked lots of discussion. I want you to just ask you one other thing. We're at the Department for Education. We've been meeting Eileen Milner and her team this morning and our president, Richard Sheriff, said, what, what do you think uh, head teachers in running mats should have more of? Uh, what, what quality? And she said curiosity. What, what did she mean by that? Do you think? I think I think that I was referring to the fact that uh, accounting officers, who are ultimately responsible for their portion of the public purse, it's public money, need to be perhaps a little bit braver in understanding what's going on in the day-to-day uh, -day operations of their finance teams and making sure that at the end of the financial year when their accounts are produced and audited that they absolutely understand what the auditors are saying about your organisation um, and what that means and what could you do better and I think we need to be happier to embrace the audit process as an opportunity for a constructive dialogue to help the, um, the trust work more efficiently and ultimately that can only improve the outcomes for the pupils. Julia Harnan, thank you. I'm Emma Nice, I'm Chief Executive of the National Governance Association. And we're here at a special occasion, the House of Commons uh, Terrace. Tell us what, what we're here for. It's the NGA's Outstanding Governance Awards that we run every two years. It's a fantastic time to celebrate at Clark's single school governors, uh, multi-academy trusts and this year we also looked at schools that had uh, visions and strategies that were really driving the education in their schools. I was interested in that because people might have assumed that there had always been that kind of category, vision and strategy, um, but this is the second year of it. Tell us why that has suddenly become important for you. Well, defining the vision and ethos and strategic direction of a school or a trust is the first core responsibility of a governing board but we were finding that actually governing boards were really sort of paying lip service to that the Department for Education doesn't produce anything about how to do that and quite often school leaders were resorting to very very detailed school development plans that run to you know 70, 80, 90 pages they weren't strategic, they weren't high level, they didn't 
make it clear what was the schools or trust uh, priorities. So we really wanted to encourage people to do this well in a way that makes a difference and isn't just a piece of paper that's going to be filed away. And you've got a, a, another idea which, which Ascol is very strongly supporting along with other people. Just to finally just talk about the educators on board idea. Yes, thank you. We're really grateful to you and Askel for promoting this. The Educators on Board campaign is encouraging teachers, middle leaders and senior leaders uh, to volunteer to govern in another school or trust because we think this is an absolute win-win. Uh, the individual who volunteers gets fabulous CPD. We've got all sorts of serving governors who are also working in schools now coming out on Twitter saying what a fabulous learning experience it's been for them but equally the school or trust they're volunteering at really benefits from having somebody on the board who understands education that knowledge really adds to the skill set around the table and if somebody wants to find out more about that where do they go to so we have more information on our website NGA but also we work with Inspiring Governance and that's a platform where people can volunteer and be matched with schools that have vacancies on their governing boards uh, nearby. So if you're thinking of volunteering, please have a look at Inspiring Governance. Emma Nice, thank you. Thank you. Julia Upton and I'm head teacher at Debenham High School in Suffolk. And Debenham is a voluntary aided secondary school, so tell us a little bit about the school. So we're an 11 to 16 school. We've got um, uh, 678 students, um, ranging from a really quite varied um, demographic, but a very rural community. Um, so a number of different parishes, children coming from very small primary schools to us um, and joining us beyond catchment as well. And a very successful school academically, but it's also it's a Church of England school. We don't often talk about what it's like to be the leader of a church school. Um, so what's distinctive about it for you? Yeah, it gets making sure that those church values run through everything we do, um, rather like a stick of rock, making sure that they're not tokenistic, um, that it's not just you know quoting Bible references, but that actually in terms of teaching church values, um, we're not trying to indoctrinate those children, but they're part of the choices we make um, and the way we act with young people. So I spoke at a, a church schools conference last year, having been head of a, as you know, voluntary controlled church of england school and said so what what would you say was distinctive about your church school to these people and i said and if your response is we we have a lot of community cohesion children are very happy we've got strong values i said that's not good enough in a sense because every school will will, will say that so for you what when you talk about church values so what are the kind of things that you would say actually as a church of england school these have a particular emphasis yeah i mean in part, you would say that they are things that would encompass any good moral education. Um, so our school motto is to treat others as you would want to be treated, um, which I don't think actually anybody else could argue with, but what that means in a, a truly Christian sense. So in terms of what we mean by justice, what we mean by tolerance, um, what we mean by understanding of others. Um, and alongside that, though, specifically trying to give students a sense of spirituality. That's not about converting them to Christianity. Um, we're not a faith school in that sense um, but giving them chance to explore who they are spiritually um, as well as emotionally and academically and last question and how do you know if you're being successful at all of that 
I think it comes out in the children that leave us and how well-rounded they are when they do leave us. Um, they hopefully leave at the age of 16 ready to face the challenges of the modern world um, with a really true sense of who they are, whoever that might be. Julia Upton, thank you. So I'm Anthony Selden and I'm Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham. I want to just talk about two things briefly. So you've written this great book, The Fourth Education Revolution, which essentially is talking about what could be the impact of artificial intelligence. And it's a very optimistic book at a time when people are often saying, oh, this means we're not going to have teachers. Give us the flavour of the thesis there. It's about the whole 4.0 revolution that embraces AI, but also uh, augmented and virtual reality, big data, internet of things, blockchain etc. And this is going to be, is the most exciting development for 500 years since the 3.0 revolution began in the 16th century with the printing press. Um, And if we get this right, it will be the best thing that uh, our schools, uh, further education colleges, education in general will ever have had. And it will be in the interests of the many, uh, not the few. It will be the biggest ever imaginable uh, benefit, including the 800 million young people who do not have any school or anything recognisably called a school on the planet at the moment. And we need to get it sorted so it's not going to be creamed off by the big tech companies whose interests are other than uh, the deep learning and the well-being of all uh, inhabitants of Earth. And um, could you you just explain, why is this going to be good for the teaching profession? Well, uh, one way, Jeff, is that at the moment the vast numbers, um, 40%, is it more, leaving the profession after... Uh, five years with administration one of the factors but also a sense that they don't have the autonomy that the high-minded excitement and ideals that led them into the profession hasn't been realized in the humdrum gray um, mechanistic processing which is what schools uh, can and have all too often become in the factory model of course there are many glorious exceptions uh, including I'm sure everyone listening to this Uh, podcast wouldn't be in schools like that but far too many of the world over are like that Um, it can be very liberating for them it can mean that they can truly teach truly engage it means that they their own learning of their own subjects and and about pedagogy will constantly be enriched they're going to be learning every bit as much as the students are learning it's wonderfully exciting if but only if we get it right I just want to ask you one other thing. You're Vice-Chancellor of Buckingham University, a very dynamic university. Lots of my members, head teachers and deputies, they, they worry about where we are in terms of the university sector. They see those youngsters being given unconditional offers, not in the interest always of the youngster, the community and the school. Where, where do you think you are, uh, that, that we are in terms of universities? Well, um, I, I don't like to criticise universities, Um, because there are many wonderful things about higher education in Britain 
but the truth is, and universities hate to hear this, but it doesn't stop it being true, is that they were arrogant towards schools. They thought that they were understanding uh, schools, uh, but they weren't. So, for example, we've just had a teaching excellence framework with very little understanding about what schools have spent decades uh, uh, working on to improve their own teaching and learning. They think somehow that uh, teaching undergraduates is a class apart from teaching sixth formers or GCSE classes. Well, it isn't. It really isn't, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, smell the coffee. That They are smell the silicon. They are... Um, and they have been callous about understanding mental health uh, factors. They've been overly obsessed with research, overly obsessed by their own institutional reputations, their own building programs, their own relative positions to other universities in this country and the world. And I'm afraid to say that with better leadership, uh, with a more greater sense of conscience and humility and engagement from the leaders of universities rather than being in the ivory towers that um, it's changing now but but too many in the past were in those ivory towers uh, we're in a self-made crisis uh, so I would say to um, the heads and others listening to this HE University is still the best imaginable destination for students to have confidence and to be the change themselves, to get in there and to help universities change. Universities do want to change. They recognise that they have got too out of touch uh, with schools and with the lives of, of students. Uh, they're wanting to re-engage and I think in five years' time we'll be through this crisis and in a much better place. Francis Selden, thank you. The Ask Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. 